13 years, we have suffered indignity, living as beings with no home, wandering from place to place, hiding from the eyes of our kin. 13 years, we have suffered separation from our friends, our children, and our family. 13 years, we have lived in disgrace from our weakness in the court of the Kurus. We have suffered the pain of our wife's humiliation by the hands of the sons of Dhrashtra. Thirteen years we battled the elements, devas, rakshasas, and other beings to ensure our survival. Thirteen years we festered in a quiet rage and in hopes of peace, but for not. For thirteen years you have lived on borrowed time, our time, and when we offered peace, you demanded more. Now, thirteen years are over. You have thrown away peace. You have brought war to our family. You have brought your own destruction. Prepare to reap it. Parantapa, the scorcher of foes. Arjuna stood near the helm of the seven Akshohinis of the Pandava army. One and a half million people stood behind him, ready for battle. He stood in his chariot, a chariot hoisting the flag of Hanuman, drawn by four white horses and charioteered by his friend and cousin, Krishna. His four brothers spread out to his sides, along with his other friends and family, their hands gripping their bows and their conches, ready to sound the engine of war. Nearly a mile in front of him stood the eleven Akshohinis, two and a half million soldiers of the Kauravas, his cousins, and today his enemies. Arjuna narrowed his eyes, his vision focusing on the enemy generals before him, his breath calm and controlled, his hand tightly clenching his bow, ready to release his missiles. He sees his cousin Duryodhana speaking to his great-grandfather Bhishma, the greatest warrior on this field, if not any other field of this age. Suddenly Bhishma roars, shaking the firmament, a roar like a lion that just challenged the foe, a sound that thunders across all the expanse. Bhishma then takes up his conch, takes a deep breath, and blows it. Immediately, followed by the drums, trumpets, beating shields, other conches, and the yells of the code of our warriors, exciting each other for, ready for, destruction. Arjuna lifts up his conch, the gift of the gods, Devadatta, and Krishna raises his conch, Panchajanya. Arjuna's brothers, seeing both Krishna and Arjuna raise their conches, all together take a deep breath and blow their own conches. Bhimasena, the doer of terrible deeds, sounds his conch, Pondara. Yudhishthira, the eldest son, triumphs, Anantavijaya, unending victory. The twins, Nakulahasadeva, both blow their conches, Sugosha and Manipushpaka. As if in immediate response, the rest of the Pandava army and their generals blow their conches, roaring like the beasts of the jungle and filling the skies with their sound, overpowering and breaking the vigor of the Kauravas. Arjuna takes a longer breath, his mind ready for battle, his fingers twitching as if releasing arrows. He looks down at his cousin Krishna and says, Krishna, take my chariot in between the two armies. I want to see my enemies and foes those who have readied their lives to end ours. I want to see them, those who have sided with the hateful-minded Duryodhana. 
Krishna turns back and starts the reins, gently leading the four white horses yoked to the chariot into the middle of the battlefield of Kurukshetra. Kurukshetra, the field where once five lakes of blood were filled by Parshurama after he cleansed the earth of the power-obsessed and oppressive Kshatriyas. Krishna draws the chariot in the midst of the two armies, directly in front of Bhishma and Drona, turning to Arjuna and saying, Arjuna, see before you all the warriors of the Kauravas. Arjuna looks before him, seeing his great-grandfather Bhishma and his teacher Drona, and his heart suddenly starts beating fast. He feels his stomach churning and has difficulty breathing. He sees his friends of decades standing ready to fight him. He sees his uncle, who had treated him with much love and respect before, now standing before him, holding weapons in their hands, pointed at him, ready for war. He sees his own kinsmen, people he had stood with, laughed with, enjoyed life, now looking at him with fear and ready to kill him. He turns and looks to his own army, his brothers, his father-in-law, his friends, his sons, and sees them also ready to battle. And he sees within them the intent to die if need be. His legs give way and he stumbles in his chariot. He grabs his flagpost for support. Gandiva, his mystical divine bow, bestowed to him by Varuna, the lord of the cosmic oceans, slowly slips from his hands. Arjuna looks to Krishna and says, Krishna, I see everyone I know before me, ready to battle. I can't do this. I can barely stand. My legs will not support me. My mouth is dry. My body shivers as the hair on my arms stiffen. My hands are wet with sweat, and Gandiva slips from them. I cannot do this, Krishna. I cannot kill them. Nothing good will come from killing them. I don't want to kill them. I don't need the kingdom or the riches. How can I desire victory at this expense? The very reason we wish to enjoy the kingdom and pleasures, they stand before us today, our friends and family, our kinsmen, our relatives, people that we love and cherish. They stand before us ready to die. I don't want to kill them even if they want to kill me. I won't even kill them for the power over the entire universe, let alone this kingdom. Even though the Kauravas tried to kill us, I do not want to kill them. What joy will I get from their deaths? I will only incur sin for this. Krishna does not budge and continues to listen to Arjuna, whose mind and thoughts are racing while his body struggles to stand. Arjuna says, These people are overcome by greed and power and are blind to the sin and evil of killing their own family and friends. We should know better. We should shun this crime and not kill Krishna. If we fight each other and kill each other in this war, our entire society will fall into chaos. With those ties that bind us destroyed, Adharma will take over everyone in society. When Adharma takes over, women will fall. And when women fall, so does our Varna society and traditions. When these traditions die, Hell is all that is left for those without support. All of this death, destruction, and hell, simply because we wish to rule? It is better that they kill me unarmed and unresisting. I will not fight and kill. Arjuna drops 
Gandiva and his arrows and moves to the back of his chariot and sits down, resolving not to fight. His eyes are wet with the tears that roll down his face, his body shivering and his heart racing. His thoughts dart from thinking about losing his friends and family to having to kill his family and not wanting the blood of this war and its total destruction on his hands. He has fought dozens of battles before and killed thousands of men, but that was different. And this is different. This was his family, his friends. They all had histories. They all had names and faces and lives that he knew and was a part of. How could this be Dharma? How could this be right? Krishna steps down from the chariot and walks to Arjuna. Arjuna is hunched over with his elbows on his knees and his hands cradling his face. As tears drip down from his fingers, he says, Krishna, I am overcome with compassion. I do not know what my dharma is. My mind is overwhelmed. Tell me what to do. I need your counsel. I am your disciple. Only you can help me. I have nobody else. I have no one else to look to. No one else to seek guidance from. Tell me what to do. Arjuna takes a deep breath and says, I will not fight. Then becomes silent. As Krishna looks down at Arjuna, the air seems to slow down. The sun's movement starts to slow at the horizon. The earth below them rests, and the heavens seem to glow ever so brighter. In midst of the two armies, seated on a chariot, with the heavy weight of the war on his mind, Arjuna fails to take notice of all this. Krishna chuckles slightly, and a small smile creeps across his face. The universe prepares to hear, as Krishna says, Ashochanam Vashochastvam Pragnabadham Shabashase Katasu Nagatasunscha Nanushochanti Pandita. And thus begins the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of the Lord. It is a dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna in midst of the battlefield of Kurukshetra, before the start of the Great War. It is found in a larger text called the Mahabharata, the largest epic in the world, uh, consisting of about 100,000 verses. It is said of the Mahabharata, What is here can be found everywhere, but what is not here is found nowhere. The dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna is a really fascinating one. Actually, it's one that's gripped uh, humanity, about billions of people over the past at least 2,500 years by conservative estimates, 5,000 years by non-conservative estimates. More traditionalists take the view of 5,000 years. And modern scholars take between 2,500 years to about 3,000 years ago is when they think this text was composed. Now, this is actually the beginning of both the Bhagavad Gita and I want it to be the beginning of the podcast. So I want to welcome you to the Meru podcast. And in media res, my name is Mukunda Raghavan. Um, you will also be joined by my colleague and friend Rachit Tapial um, and a few other people that will take part in our journey to really engage with the Indian 
and and sometimes I I think that word is very um, restrictive, but I'll use that word anyway right now. The Indian uh, historic philosophy, mythology, religion, history, and just culture and thought. And by India here, I kind of mean the larger idea of India, uh, which from ancient times is probably from around Tajikistan um, to the north. And to the west, you probably hit as far as Iran, Afghanistan region, um, which current, I'm talking about what the current areas are. To south and southwest, you probably go as far down as to Indonesia, even the Philippines. And to the east, you know, I, I think we can take it as far as Bhutan and Burma, but actually a lot of the t topics we'll cover will actually go far into even Japan, right? Because the influence of Buddhism goes from central India, Bihar region where it started, and it spreads all over the world, in fact. So what is the purpose of this podcast? And why did I start this entire podcast starting off with the Bhagavad Gita? So the Bhagavad Gita, I, I wanted to start off with that to kind of give you, my listeners, our listeners, um, a kind of insight of kind of how I'm going to do a storytelling process. So this blog will, this podcast, um, uh, correct me, and, and the blog actually also, will be broken out into a, a variety of different formats to touch upon different things we can discuss and get different viewpoints. So the first format we'll kind of have is a narrative, kind of like the, the one I just gave right now um, in the Bhagavad Gita. The narrative will flow out from a, either a story or telling of some uh great poem or what's also known as a subhashitas or great sayings will tell in a narrative format. So these these narratives will come from things like the Mahabharata, the Puranas, maybe the Vedas, and also even from very, uh, I, I wouldn't say secular, but very, uh, what's it called, lokayata, or from the perspective of the world, um, texts, something like Hitopadesha or Panchatantra, which both are actually... Um, if you remember things like Aesop's fables, Hitopadesha and Panchatantra tend to be like that, So, but they have a lot more um, sayings. Actually, uh, historically, many people think the Aesop's fables is actually um, a Greek rendition of, Bo uh, of uh, Panchatantra. Um, so that's, that's an interesting point. We can get into that later. Additionally, uh, in the narrative format, we'll also do things like storytelling about particular people in histories and other myths and legends. So you kind of get a, a very kind of dynamic and uh, narrative engagement with these texts. So, so it just doesn't become a dry uh, philosophical or dry reading. The second format we also want to engage in is a discussion. So we'll have myself, uh, Ratchet, maybe a few other people or a mixture of, 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 that, uh, of that group to talk about a, a topic and kind of go with it wherever it takes us, right? So maybe the topic will be dharma in, in, in the modern world or, uh, you know, the ever amazing and easy topic of caste system versus varna versus jati um, or topics that cover like Buddhism in the modern world. Things like this, we can just have a, a central topic and just kind of speak our mind and have a discussion so that we, we can kind of take the topic from a different perspective that each of us bring to the table. The third the third format would be an interview. So we might bring uh, 
an author on or a scholar on or just someone else that has a contrarian point of view. And then we'll interview them about that point of view or book or theory, whatever they have, so that we can kind of get a back and forth, understand from an expert their views, bring in our own views and have you, the audience, kind of see the dynamic of of that engagement. I think it's actually very helpful because a lot of things I don't know, a lot of things Wretched or other people do not know, but these experts can bring that in with a little more nuance. And the the fourth format we're going to have is, a, and I would love to do, is kind of a question answer from you, the audience, right? So maybe beforehand we could do a, a live video chat where we can have questions uh, presented to us before, or we can do some sort of inter- uh, some sort of podcast where I take questions off of Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, I want to. I, I mean, this is a very kind of free flowing, um, dynamic kind of project that we're engaging in. We want to provide a lot of media and a lot of different ways to engage with our audience so that it's not restrictive. You know, people that like narratives can jump on the narrative side. People that like, um, you know, interviews or discussions can do that. Or people that want to do question and answer, more than welcome. You know, people can jump all, all across the board and just make it a dynamic kind of engagement. And and if you want to read, we're, we're going to have blog posts and and items on online that, that will actually kind of expand the knowledge and expand your reading base. We'll also provide a, a web uh, a web page where we'll have, you know, uh, cool readings that you can engage with. So maybe one of the things we do for a discussion, we'll have a particular text we want to read and we engage with it. You know, very similar to those of you who have listened to uh, Partially Examined Life or, you know, something like that. So I think it'll be really cool to have this kind of format and this kind of engagement with, um, you know, with each other and, and with you guys. Um, so. Why, why are we doing this? I, I, I mean, that's a question I think I've asked myself, uh, you know, Rutchett's asked himself. And, you know, we'll do a joint discussion where Rutchett and I discuss what we want to kind of bring to the table on this. But I'll, I'll just give you my, my general view right now. You know, I started this project and I want to start this project uh, primarily because I think there's so much information out there that is lost. Um, and by lost, I mean like that we're not discussing, we're not bringing to the table. It, uh, I could give you from my perspective, you know, like being an Indian, um, Indian origin, raised in the West, raised in America, um, with a, a deep, deep cultural uh, kind of enmeshment and an engagement from my youngest age. What 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 I've noticed is, and actually what I've experienced is, throughout my both my educational and intellectual life in the West, you find very, very little um, connection given to the East. And, you know, Edward Said's Orientalism, maybe that's part of it. Uh, Maybe it's also the point of view of saying, you know, um, let's just study what we know, which is Western civilization. What I thought for this project is because I have for most, most of my life, and I, I imagine most of you who are listening also have had this engagement where they haven't got too much information or knowledge given to them about the the East, right? Everyone loves to say the Enlightenment is a Western product, but maybe that's because the Enlightenment wasn't entirely necessary in India and in China. Maybe those values actually had different um, positives that brought to the table. India didn't have the Dark Ages like... Uh, Europe did, you know, uh, and but China and some ones didn't either. It's kind of been a continual progress. So, I mean, there's nuance to this, but I'm just talking generally. 
for example, I mean, how much, how many people know that until approximately the colonial period, India and China each, each had over 20% GDP as we ter- use that term today, but actually the global wealth and trade of the world. Europe at this point was minuscule. It was bef- below like four or 5%. Actually the West, India and China actually dominated most of, um, in most of history, the economic areas, the intellectual areas, the the trade, it, it, these were two dominant regions of the world that brought so much to the table, but we hear nothing about it, right? Everyone loves to talk about Socrates and Plato and you know Anaximander and Exagoras and Parmenides and Heraclitus, and then you and then through Aquinas and Augustine, but no one hears about people like Dramira or Tanka or Tremila or Bodhyayana or Badrayana or, you know, Yagnavalka, you know, these great Indian thinkers that existed some during the time, some before uh, these great Greek thinkers. Everyone thinks that philosophy was only born in Europe. That's not true at all. Philosophy has been an in- integral part of the Indian culture, tradition, and history since as far back as we can go, right? There's germs of philosophy within the Vedas. And for example, another thing is people love to talk about, you know, science and how science is such a Western product. That's not, again, entirely true. You know, Aristotle started most of what we know as Western science, you know, the germs of, of science. But you can go farther back than Aristotle to someone like you know, um, what's his name, Charaka or Shushita, probably somewhere in the 9th or 10th century BCE, who have books written about the medical process and understanding the world around them and actually doing actual surgeries, of, including rhinoplasty, the nose, and, and understanding things like diabetes and various, various other things. And we don't get that. And I want to bring that to the table. I want to bring that to the forefront and discuss how important this Indian thought. Again, when I say Indian, I mean a vast region, a vast region. Again, from Tajikistan in the north, Iran and Afghanistan to the west, to all the way down to Philippines, maybe in the south, southeast, and then to the east, we can take it as far as Japan. You know, like and but I want to focus mostly on ideas that connect to the larger, I would quote unquote, Indic viewpoint, maybe Jain, Hindu, Buddhist, um, you know, Charavakas, um, and also like Lokayatas and Ajivikas and all these different philosophies and thoughts that grew from a common base. And actually the common base in many ways is the Vedas, either your opposition to or your connection or your ultimate obligation to the Vedas. All that is a central point of where I would take Indic thought to be. So Jains, Buddhists, Ajivikas, Charavakas, they tend to oppose, or not oppose, but be contra-contra relationship with the Vedas. Sometimes they agree, sometimes they disagree. Now more of the, what we call modern Hindus tend to align more with the Vedas. The old systems would be things like Yoga, Samkhya, Vaisheshika, Nyaya, and others right there's there's a host of others so the whole point of this is we want to bring all that knowledge and practical wisdom to the forefront today and engage with it in a much more 
I guess, personal and relationship kind of way that we do in the modern world with various people and ideas in the Western context, right? We still engage with enlightenment ideas, values, philosophies. Um, And the difference, I think, really, to be honest, is most people think of the ancient Indian systems as dead or kind of crystallized in a format that exists in the past. And I think that's incorrect. I think... uh, I think it's dynamic and fluid and living. It's a living tradition, right? All, a lot of your ancient uh, other traditions have died away. Your Egyptians, your Greeks, much of Chinese culture actually in terms of connection to the, uh, the, the old systems now. It's much more Maoist and, and communist. But the culture of India is one of the most unique places in the world because you still have the conversations with people from thousands of years ago, and obviously I don't mean like actual conversations, but conversations with what they've written. How are we engaging with it? How are we building upon it and struggling with it and and trying to learn about it and take the wisdom from them and, and the good things and make it part of our life today and engage with it? And I think that is actually missing to a large part. You know, a lot of people just go to Monday or temple or listen to a lecture and that's it. But I, what I want to what I want to bring to this table and to this larger podcast vision is, I want this to be an active engagement. I want this to be something that people learn from and then think about and try to apply in their daily lives. So maybe not daily lives, but just their overall ideas about the world and how they engage with the world and their philosophies in, about the world. Cause I think that's so important. I don't want to lose that. You know, you don't, none of us have to be a Sanskrit scholar. None of us have to be a scholar of all religions or anything else. But I do think having some base in this tradition can make your life much better in, in many, many ways. Right. We currently, we are living in a world where people are struggling with identities and struggling with, with trying to figure out where their place is or where their civilization's place is or their group's place is in the world. And I think we can hopefully bring to this dialogue that actually it doesn't have to be a fixed place. Life is dynamic. Existence is is, is so multi-varietied that you can be in a place of kind of a relative untetheredness, but really be centered in that untethered. I know it sounds like a, a real stupid vapid comment, but what I mean is kind of like you're sitting in, in a boat in water that's kind of waving back and forth, but you're stable in that water, right? And I think that's what we've lost today. This sense of it's okay to not have a particular fixed location in the world as long as you have that foundation beneath your feet that's somewhat stable, that keeps you afloat, that keeps you around. And that's what I think a lot of the Indian thought and philosophy and mythology brings to this table is how do we bring some sort of order to the chaos around us and why it's also okay to have that chaos, why that chaos is important Um, and why diversity is widely important, right? You know, today we're, we're kind of struggling with diversity, whether you're in Europe or America or India, how do we engage with diversity? Is it just pure tolerance? Is it pure acceptance? Is there middle ground? And I think the Indian, ancient Indian, in many ways, even through the medieval period, thought process and attitude towards it is so important to help us find that foundation so that we can engage in a much more diverse world than, than, than have been for the past maybe generations. 
Um, so, I mean, that's kind of the reason we're doing, I'm doing this podcast, right? You know, uh, and plus it's a bigger way for me to engage with, with my ideas that I've kind of had percolating in my head and, and in my mind, and I haven't been able to coherently put into either written format or audio format. And this way allows me to sit down and have to do it and, and have to be confronted with it, right? One of the most important things about any dialogue or an idea is that it can't sit in a vacuum by itself. It has to be engaged with, it has to be confronted, it has to be challenged so that the, the idea gets refined and, and, and becomes better over time. And, and all the all the impurities of the idea can hopefully be burnt away in, in that crucible of engagement. Um, and, and that's why I think we, uh, I would love to have this to be such a dynamic way, you know, and people want to contribute and be part of it. Please message me and, um, and let's discuss what we can bring to the table, right? This is not a project that's ideally going to be just a, a singular project. This should be something that becomes a larger, I guess, point of, connection to build unity amongst people and ideas so if you're if you're jain or buddhist or have a different sect of hinduism or or different idea atheist even right atheism is perfectly fine and we want to bring that to the table and engage with it if you have these point of views you want to discuss these texts and this history and mythology and philosophy and have those ideas come on down let's 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 jump in let's jump on the let's jump in the boat together and engage and and really push this forward because I think this is this is an important part. We have to bring we have to bring these ideas that have I mean partially been lost, but not engaged with in the West to make the West engage with them, to make the West think about okay maybe you have to stop being so um, you know Eurocentric or Western centric. You know m- many of us have learned Marx and Engels and and you know Rawls and. And, you know, the, the founding fathers and John Locke and, you know, all the uh, the philosopher, political philosophers. But how many people have sat down and read the political philosophy of Bhishma and the, and the Shantipadva or, you know, read Chanakya or Vidura or any of these great thinkers that thought about politics and the, the nature of a polity and democracy and so on. You know, and I think this is something that over time will will build into more. Um, so. On that note, you know, I hope you really enjoyed this first uh, podcast and kind of you're getting a little smattering of my babbling on and and also my narrative style Um, and it'll get refined. So I apologize if I have a lot of ums, ands and whatever right now. It's just difficult when this is the first time you've done it and you're kind of learning on the go. That will change over time. I'll get better and we will keep engaging. So thank you guys for joining me today on the Meru Podcast. I hope to see you next time and take care. Namaste.